As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello again, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Today is episode 16 of PCPC, Sweet 16. We should have thrown a party, had a cake, and bought ourselves a brand new red convertible. But alas, we don't have any money, so we're just going to make a new podcast episode for you all. On episode 16 of Plane Crash Podcast, we will be taking a look at Turkish Airlines Flight 1951, a scheduled flight from Istanbul, Turkey to Amsterdam, Netherlands, on the morning of Wednesday, February 25th, 2009. Thanks to all of you out there that have been writing reviews on all the various podcasting sites. One listener from Norway left us a review recently, and they said that they were doing so to blow wind in the PCPC sails to get more episodes coming. Thank you for that. Yes, thank you. Our ship is uh, moving just a little bit faster. Yes, thanks for the nice review. If you're a listener of the podcast and you've been sitting back patiently, biding your time, waiting for the perfect moment to strike and leave us the best review we've ever received, please wait no further. The suspense is killing me. Please just fork over the goods. Leave us a review. If you want to be our friend on Twitter, our Twitter handle is Plane Crash Pod. That's Plane Crash Pod. Follow us. Say what's up. Share any plane stories you might have. Joining us today on the podcast, as you just heard, is someone you are probably familiar with by now. She's producer of the podcast and the only voice of reason on PCPC, Miss Tess Andrade. How's life in 2020, Tess? Hi, Michael. It's going great so far. Um, but I'd just like to say that I think you are definitely very reasonable. No, I, I consider myself an unreasonable man. Oh, well, low opinion of yourself, apparently. <laughs> um, so we just had Valentine's Day. How do you feel about Valentine's Day? Is it a fun day for couples that should be enjoyed? Or is it a commercial holiday invented by the man to keep us all mindlessly consuming? Oh, wow. Well, how do you feel, Michael? <laughs> Um, no, I, I like Valentine's Day. You know, I, I try not to make too much of it, um, but, uh, you know, it's, 
I'm fine with it. It's good. Yeah. Any holiday is an excuse to be nice to people. Every uh, Valentine's Day, I'm reminded of this story that this girl named Alex that works at a bookstore in the neighborhood told me. She told me a couple years ago she had a Valentine's Day where she had just broken up with her boyfriend, and she was kind of bummed out about that. And she woke up Valentine's Day morning, and she decided she just was going to have a good day. She was like, I'm going to put on a nice outfit. I'm going to take some construction paper and make some Valentine's. Then she walked around the neighborhood, went up to strangers, told them that they looked good, and gave them a Valentine. Isn't that nice? I love that story. Yeah, I feel like Valentine's Day should be just an excuse to be nice to people and enjoy your life. Yeah, just as every day. You should enjoy your life every day. So you just recently had a trip to Austin, no? I did, yes. Um, how was your fl- travel experience there? What uh, airline did you fly? I flew United there and back. Getting there, we had some turbulence, and I was actually on the plane with a young girl who's about 10 years old, and she was really afraid to fly, like really, really scared. But her dad was so sweet. He was holding her hand from across the aisle and telling her she was doing a great job and um, that he was there for her. It was it was nice to see. Aww. She was actually so scared that she, she couldn't even go to the bathroom. She was too afraid to get up. And um, her dad said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be there outside the bathroom. I'll be right there. I, you know, it's too small to go inside with you, but I'll be standing outside. I'll be there if you need me. And eventually she went to the bathroom and everyone on the plane sitting around her was congratulating her and telling her she was doing a good job. So it was very heartwarming. That's a nice story. Yeah. Um, so what kind of ticket did you have? I was a basic economy flying on an E-175 there and back. So basically the thing with the E-175 I learned uh, is that it's, well, it's very small in general, like not a great plane for a tall person. Wouldn't Mm -hmm. be great for you, Michael. And there are only two seats on either side of the plane. So the nice thing about that is that you're either window or your aisle. You don't nice. have to be in the middle. Yeah. So you might as well get that basic economy because most of the time I get the main economy because I just want to choose my seat. Right. But if I knew I was going to get a window or an aisle seat no matter what, might as well save those extra bucks. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only drawback was that I did have to check a bag, which was about $30. So... Had I known that I would have to check a bag, I might have splurged for the um, regular economy. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds like you had a good flight and uh, you got to sit in a nice seat and you got to help a fellow passenger make it through the flight. Yeah. That, that sounds like a good time. Yeah. And then actually on the way back, I had another memorable experience. Our boarding was delayed because there was a pungent odor in the cabin, mm. which the flight attendant told me. Um She said that it was almost like a fish-like smell. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were delayed by about 30 or 40 minutes, finally got on the plane. Everything was fine. They said that what they thought it was, was someone had spilled something in the overhead and that it had been um, vented through the lavatory. Hmm. They didn't end up finding the spill, but that they were pretty sure that that's what it was. They had maintenance come over and take a look. Mm-hmm. There was no any no fuel smell. Um, it was just some. It smelled more like a spill. So, I I was put at ease by that. Yeah, it's good communication between you and the flight attendant. Yeah, I have to say, I really appreciated them being open and upfront about why they were delayed. That's nice. 
Well, uh, the Democratic primary has started in the United States. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, all vying for the nomination. I thought we could talk about politics for a second just to ensure that we immediately lose half our audience. What do you think, Tess? Yeah, it doesn't sound like a great idea. I'd rather not share my political views, Michael. Yeah, let's uh, let's just shelve this conversation. I like to play it close to the breast. I'm like Taylor Swift in her, the early days of her career. <laughs> I feel like no matter who gets elected president, half the population is going to take a massive gulp of haterade and be unhappy about it. Exactly. So moving on. So we'll just skip it. Politics section is officially over. In the world of aviation, on Wednesday, February 5th, 2020, Pegasus Airlines Flight 2193, a scheduled flight from Izmir, Turkey to Istanbul, ended in tragedy as Flight 2193 skidded off the east end of the runway at Istanbul Airport. The plane had 183 people on board, 177 passengers, and a crew of six. Three people died from the incident. There were 179 injuries. It was reported that there was a strong thunderstorm in the area around the time the plane attempted its landing, and there were strong tailwinds which may have prevented the plane from decelerating properly upon touchdown. The plane broke into three pieces, and passengers exited the plane through the broken sections of the fuselage. The plane was a Boeing 737-800. It sounds like bad weather might have had a lot to do with this incident, huh, Tess? Definitely, yeah. That's why I don't really like to fly in bad weather. Yeah, it seems like poor weather conditions is often a factor in many of the crashes that we've covered. I know in certain areas of the world, the weather is kind of unpredictable and you know difficult to say what's going to be what, but I'll take an old-fashioned delay anytime as opposed to flying me through bad weather. How about you? I would um, rather be delayed for a full week than have passengers be put at risk flying through bad weather. Yeah. I know this makes me sound like a total novice, but I don't get why we can't have longer runways. Seems horrible when these plane crashes happen because the runway wasn't long enough to slow down. I know that real estate's at a premium, but maybe we can just figure out how long a runway needs to be and double it. Or figure out some barrier we can put at the end of a runway that can absorb a plane coming in. It seems like at racetracks, if a car crashes and goes into the side of the wall, there's like shock absorbers. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, in a perfect world, we'd have infinite runways, but um, it's all a calculation of space and money, and I'm sure a lot goes into it. I'm sure there's reasonings for it, but another thing is that this plane, uh, I think at Istanbul, it went off a massive drop-off as well, which impacted things. So if you're going to build a runway, maybe don't have a drop-off. It's kind of nice if it's just a cornfield. Now for a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor in today's episode is BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's 21st century therapy. What Uber is to car rides, BetterHelp is to therapy. BetterHelp costs less than traditional therapy. You can talk with a licensed therapist via phone chat or video chat, and you can message your counselor 24 hours a day from the comfort of your home. You're not confined to the traditional nine to five hours of typical therapists. You can schedule a session that works around your hours and your needs. BetterHelp is great for people that lack options in your area. Maybe the local therapist is somebody you went to high school with, and to keep your privacy and see someone else, you'd have to drive an hour out of your way. Well, now you don't have to. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod, you get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. 
There you fill out a questionnaire, sign up, and they match you up with a licensed counselor that specializes in your area of need. Tess has been using BetterHelp. Tess, what do you think about it? Yeah, I think it's super cool. I think the flexibility thing is key. Um, If you're like me, you don't always know where you'll be at any given time, and uh, things are always changing in my schedule. So I really appreciate that I don't have to carve out two hours uh, to drive across town to see my therapist and come come back. It's, yeah. Yeah. You can really talk to them anytime. It's convenient. And I also think there's a lot of misconceptions about therapy. Like something has to be going horribly wrong in your life before you start talking to someone. I think that's wrong. Maybe you just need to articulate some goals about something you're working towards or lose some bad habits and talking to an objective and intelligent person just might be the best thing for you. So thanks again to BetterHelp for their sponsorship of the show. And if you're interested, head to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. I like to mention at the top of every episode that I'm not a pilot. I didn't go to aviation school and I'm not an expert by any means. I get anxiety about flying, and this podcast serves as an anxiety exposure therapy of sorts. I figured if I learned some more about how planes fly and why crashes of the past occurred, might tamp down some of my nervous feelings surrounding flying. We realize that what we discuss in each episode is a tragedy in the lives of many of our fellow human beings on the planet. The victims in these plane accidents are someone's father, mother, sister, or brother, And we in no way want to be disrespectful or insensitive to that fact. We just think discussing why these accidents occurred and how they contributed to improving the safety of air travel is an interesting and important discussion to have. With each accident, crucial lessons are learned. And these painful lessons from the past have made traveling through the skies as safe as it is today. You ready to get started with the story of Flight 1951, Tess? I am. Illuminate me, Michael. Turkish Airlines Flight 1951 was a scheduled flight from Istanbul at a Turk airport in Istanbul, Turkey, to Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, Netherlands on the morning of Wednesday, February 25th, 2009. The plane was a Boeing 737-8F2, a variant of the Boeing 737-800 series next-generation aircraft. The Boeing 737 Next Generation aircraft was developed in the mid-1990s and is considered to be the third generation of Boeing 737s. First there was the Boeing 737, then the Boeing 737 Classic, then this third version, the Boeing 737 Next Generation. The 737 Next Generation is a narrow-body aircraft. A narrow-body aircraft means there's only one aisle on the plane, with either two or three seats on each side of that aisle. The Boeing 737 Next Generation was launched in 1993, and the first deliveries took place in 1997. This plane was sold as an update of its predecessor with better fuel capacity, new wing design, and a glass cockpit, meaning digital displays replaced the old analog dials and instrument gauges of the past. With the new 737 Next Generation in the late 90s, you could fly more passengers on less fuel, and this means more money for airlines. The 737-800 was the most popular selling aircraft of this generation for Boeing, with 4,991 airplanes sold. Turkish Airlines started flying Boeing 737-800s as part of its fleet in October 1998. The 737-8F2 
that was used for flight 1951 was delivered to Turkish Airlines on March 27, 2002, so the plane was just under seven years old at the time of the incident. The plane had 157 seats, 16 in first class, 141 seats in economy. At the time of the incident, Turkish Airlines had 51 737 8F2s as part of its fleet. The captain of Turkish Airlines Flight 1951 was Captain Hassan Tassan Arasan. Captain Arasan was a former fleet commander in the Turkish Air Force that graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1976. He started working at Turkish Airlines on June 11, 1996, so he had been with Turkish Airlines for over 12 years. He was 54 years old at the time of the incident. Captain Arasan had 17,000 flight hours. 10,885 hours flying Boeing 737s, and 3,058 of those hours as a captain on 737s. He was certified as a captain of 737s on April 14, 2005, and he became an instructor for Boeing 737s in August of 2006. So all in all, it sounds like this guy's an experienced captain. Yeah, very experienced. The first officer for Flight 1951 was First Officer Murat Cesare. He was 42 years old at the time of the incident. First Officer Cesare was hired by Turkish Airlines on June 12, 2008, so he had only been with the company for less than a year. Flight 1951 was a training flight for him. He was flying as co-pilot, learning from the much more experienced Captain Arasan. First Officer Cesare had just received his Boeing 737 rating in December 2008, two months prior to Flight 1951. He had 4,146 flight hours, but only 44 hours on Boeing 737s. So flying 737s is something very new to him. The safety pilot, seated in the center jump seat of the cockpit, was Olgay Ojgur. He was a 28-year-old Turkish citizen that was hired by Turkish Airlines on June 27, 2006. He had 2,126 flight hours, 720 flight hours on 737s. He was a graduate of flight school in Ankara, and he was on the flight as an extra set of eyes in the cockpit because the captain was going to be going through this training with his first officer, and thus the captain's workload would be increased. A safety pilot was required in the cockpit to aid the two pilots and oversee the flight. Flight 1951 had 128 passengers, the three pilots in the cockpit, four flight attendants for a total of 135 human beings on board. So Turkish Airlines Flight 1951 takes off from Istanbul Ataturk Airport at 8.23 a.m. local time en route to Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. Immediately after taking off, as the plane is climbing and passing through 400 feet, there's a faulty reading from the left side radio altimeter. There's two radio altimeters on Boeing 737-800s. One's on the left side, the captain's side, and one's on the right side, the first officer's side. The radio altimeter measures the distance between the airplane and the ground. By sending out a beam of radio waves from the plane, and timing how long it takes those radio waves to go from the plane to the ground and back. So at 400 feet, seconds into the flight, the left side radio altimeter is already giving false readings. It gave the reading of negative 8 feet, even though the plane was 400 feet off the ground. 
Flight 1951 continues to climb and is soon out of radio altimeter range, and the flight crew dismisses this issue as nothing to worry about. Radio altimeters generally give readings up to 2,500 feet above ground, so once the plane is above 2,500 feet, it's something that's not really at the front of anybody's mind anymore. For the next three and a half hours, it's just a typical flight across Europe from Istanbul to Amsterdam. It's early in the morning, so passengers are having coffee, reading the newspaper, anticipating their arrival in the Netherlands later that morning. At 9.53 a.m. Central European time, while Flight 1951 is flying 36,000 feet above Germany, First Officer Cesar starts the approach briefing. The crew listens to the Automatic Terminal Information Service for Schiphol Airport, and they learn that runway 18R is the runway in use for landing. Wind direction's at 200 degrees, and the wind speed is 7 knots. The first officer reports that an ILS, Instrument Landing System Category 1 approach, would be performed for this flight. About 10 minutes after they start their approach briefing, at 10.04 a.m., the flight crew contacts Amsterdam Area Control. Amsterdam, good morning, Turkish 1951, descend 280, heading 310. The controller at Amsterdam area control responds, Turkish 1951, good day to you. Turn left to heading 300, descend to flight level 150, runway 18R. So at 10.04 a.m., flight 1951 starts descending to 15,000 feet. For the next 11 minutes, the crew of Flight 1951 communicates a few more times with Amsterdam Area Control and Schiphol Approach. They are given a few more instructions to further descend in altitude to 7,000 feet, to slow their speed, and are given a few heading changes to get them lined up for their approach to runway 18R at Schiphol. At 10.15 a.m., three hours and 52 minutes into the flight, Captain Arasan radios over to Schiphol Approach, Amsterdam Turkish 1951, descending 70, speed 250. The plane is descending, passing through 8,400 feet on its way to 7,000 when an alarm starts going off in the cockpit. It's the landing gear configuration alarm. The alarm goes on and off three times over the next two minutes. Captain Arasayan notices that his radio altimeter is giving another false reading, just like earlier in the flight seconds after taking off from Istanbul. Again, the radio altimeter gives this false reading when the plane's at 8,000 feet above ground. Captain doesn't perceive the alarm to be an emergency. He reacts to it as though it's a nuisance more than anything. He turns it off with the horn cutout switch every time it turns on. Captain Arison says radio altimeter landing gear to his first officer, explaining why the alarm's going off. And first officer Cesar replies, okay, Hojum. Hojum is the Turkish word for teacher or instructor. Air traffic control at Schiphol Airport radios over at 10.19 a.m. Turkish 1951, descended 2000-1027. Captain Arasan acknowledges the directions from air traffic control and radios back 2000-1027-1951. A few seconds later, air traffic control radios over Turkish 1951, turn left, heading 265. Captain Arison replies, left 265-1951. A minute later at 10.20 a.m., a Turkish Airlines ground control employee at Schiphol Airport contacts Flight 1951 to give them parking instructions and find out how many passengers are on board. 
The ground control employee radios over Turkish 1951. Good morning. Captain Arasen replies, Good morning. Time is 3-0. We have 128 on board. Turkish Airlines ground control says, Turkish 1951, you may expect parking stand Gulf 2. Captain Arasen acknowledges the message and replies, Thank you very much. See you on the ground. Captain Arasen says to his first officer, Cesar, Parking position same as covered before. First officer Cesar replies, Okay, Hojum. Two minutes passes, and at 10.22 a.m., flight 1951 is now at 2,000 feet. First officer Cesar says, Flaps 1, speed check, speed 195, Hojum. Air traffic control at Schiphol radios over, Turkish 1951, turn left heading 210, cleared approach 18R. Captain Arison replies, Left 210, clear ILS, Turkish 1951. The first officer then states, 210 set, Hojum. At this point, the flight crew tries to engage the captain's autopilot, the left autopilot to perform a dual-channel approach. Since taking off from Istanbul, they've been using the right autopilot, the first officer's side, and the autothrottle has been engaged. But now they're trying to get the captain's autopilot engaged as well. There's an issue, and the left autopilot won't engage, and the right autopilot turns off because of this attempt to engage both, but they quickly just re-engage the first officer's autopilot and leave it at that. At 10.23 a.m., as the plane's at 1,950 feet, for the fifth time in the last eight minutes, the landing gear configuration alarm goes off. The captain's flight display shows that the radio altimeter is giving a reading of negative eight feet. Within five seconds, the alarm stops sounding, and the first officer sets flaps to 15 and confirms that the landing gear is down. At 10.24 a.m., the localizer signal is captured, and the approach mode of the autopilot is activated. The plane's now at 1,300 feet. A few seconds after this occurs, the safety pilot, Olgai Ojgur, notices on the captain's flight display screen that his radio altimeter is reading negative 8. The safety pilot says out loud, We have radio altimeter failure, Hojum. Captain Arison responds immediately with a casual, Okay, and then radios over to the air traffic control, Amsterdam Tower, Turkish 195118R. An air traffic control responds, Turkish 1951, good morning. Runway 18 right, cleared to land, winds 210 at 9. Captain Arison says, Cleared to land, thank you. Now the time is 10.25 a.m. The plane's 1,000 feet in the sky, only a couple miles away from runway 18R, and the flight crew have yet to complete their check landing list. Official Turkish Airlines policy is to perform a go-around if the landing checklist isn't completed by 1,000 feet, but this flight crew opts to continue their approach to land the plane. The flaps are set to 40, Speed is selected at 144 knots, which is around 165 miles an hour. The flight crew is running through their lists, making sure the speed brake is armed, landing gear is down, flaps are in the right position, landing lights are on. Captain Arison says, 500, please warn the cabin crew. The plane's at 500 feet, and they still haven't completed their checklist. First officer Cesar gets on the PA and says, cabin crew, take your seats. Three seconds after the first officer says, cabin crew, take your seats, as the plane's at an altitude of 460 feet, the stick shaker is activated. This is a stall warning where the control column shakes to give pilots a warning that the plane's about to stall. 
The safety pilot, Ojgur, shouts, Speed, Hojum! The speed of the plane has dropped to 107 knots. The first officer pushes the throttle forwards to increase thrust and increase airspeed. Captain Arison says, I have controls. And the first officer takes his hand off the throttles, which return back to the idle position. Again, the safety pilot, Ojgur, shouts, 100 knots, Hojum! Speed, Hojum! The auto throttle is finally turned off, and the autopilot is also disengaged. The captain pushes forward on the control column to get the nose of the plane down to address the stall. Six seconds after the auto throttle was disengaged, the throttles are finally pushed to maximum thrust to pull out of the stall, but it's too late. The plane's too close to the ground. A sink rate warning is heard in the cockpit, followed by the ground proximity warning, pull up, pull up is heard on the cockpit voice recorder. At 10.26 a.m. on February 25, 2009, Turkish Airlines Flight 1951 belly flops into a muddy field just less than a mile short of runway 18R at Schiphol Airport. The tail of the plane strikes the earth first, and the plane breaks apart into three different pieces, with the tail and the nose of the plane breaking away from the middle of the fuselage. The two engines of the plane flung 300 feet ahead of the rest of the wreckage, Luckily, the plane did not catch fire, which would have surely led to more loss of life. Sixty ambulances and several fire trucks arrived quickly on the scene. Nine human beings died on flight 1951, all three of the men in the cockpit, one flight attendant, and five passengers. Four of the five passengers that died were Americans seated in first class that were Boeing employees working on a new system for the Turkish military. There were a lot of injuries on this flight. 117 passengers were injured. 11 of those injuries were serious. Since the plane broke apart, many of the passengers exited through holes in the fuselage. The pilots were unable to be reached until 8 p.m. that evening, nine and a half hours after the crash, because they couldn't get through the reinforced cockpit doors, and they had to examine the cockpit before they could start to cut into it. There's reports that one of the pilots survived the crash, but couldn't get emergency care because no one could get inside to help him. Again, nine human beings died and 117 were injured on Turkish Airlines Flight 1951. 126 of the 135 human beings on board survived the accident. So what the hell happened? How did this seven-year-old Boeing 737-800 being flown with a very experienced pilot in the cockpit just fall out of the sky at the last minute and end up killing nine people? How did flight 1951's airspeed drop off so quickly when the pilots had set the airspeed to 144 knots? Well, the Dutch safety board was responsible for the investigation, and the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder were quickly recovered from the crash site. And what investigators discovered was that the auto throttle for flight 1951 had jumped into a mode called retard flare mode without the pilots noticing. So what is retard flare mode? When a plane's about to land and just above the runway, pilots engage in a maneuver called the landing flare. This pulls the nose of the plane up so the plane can have a smooth landing and touch down with the rear landing gear hitting the runway first. The landing flare slows the descent rate at the last couple of seconds for the flight and creates a softer touchdown, a more gentle landing for the plane. Well, on flight 1951, the pilots had activated the auto throttle. So the power 
or thrust to the engines was being controlled by a computer on the plane, not manually by the pilots. The autothrottle goes into retard flare mode or landing mode when the computer thinks the plane is right about to land on the runway. The autothrottle wants to help pull off the landing flare for the pilots and reduces the power of to the engines to idle. For the autothrottle on a Boeing 737-800 to go into this retard flare mode, four conditions have to be met. What are those conditions? First, the plane has to be within 27 feet of the ground, so very close to landing. Secondly, the flat position has to be greater than 12 and a half degrees. Third, the plane can't be climbing to or descending to a selected altitude or maintaining a selected altitude. And lastly, a speed mode of autothrottle must be active. Well, on flight 1951, there's a malfunctioning radio altimeter. And that radio altimeter is communicating to the autothrottle that the plane is at negative 8 feet. That's below 27 feet. So condition 1 is met. At 10.23 a.m., the first officer changes the flaps from 5, and he sets them at 15. So condition 2 is met. The flaps are greater than 12.5 degrees. At 2,000 feet, the pilots of flight 1951 do not select an altitude to descend to or climb to or maintain. Instead, they select the vertical speed mode and set a descent rate of 1,400 feet per minute, which satisfies conditions three and four. No altitude is selected and a speed mode of autothrottle is active. So on flight 1951 at 1024 AM and 19 seconds, as the pilots select vertical speed mode, the plane starts descending from 2,000 feet to intercept the localizer for the landing approach to runway 18R. The computer believes all these conditions that we just discussed have been met. The autothrottle jumps into retard flare mode and brings the throttles back on both engines to idle. None of the three pilots in the cockpit notices that the autothrottle has jumped into this landing mode or retard flare mode. So why don't they notice this when this happens? Well, the pilots of flight 1951 were asked to perform something called a slam dunk approach to runway 18R at Schiphol Airport. What is a slam dunk approach? Generally, when approaching a runway using an instrument landing system as flight 1951 was doing, you intercept the glide slope from below. The glide slope is the path that planes take through the sky to angle downward and gradually and safely glide to an airport runway for landing. Usually planes level off, take their time, get inside that glide path by approaching it from below. There's a lot less pressure this way. You get to take your time and relax. Well, a slam dunk approach means that your plane is above that glide slope or glide path, and the only way for you to get inside the proper path is to quickly descend an altitude and drop into the path from above instead of easing into it from below. The slam dunk approach is much more difficult for pilots to execute. At 2,000 feet, flight 1951 is above that glide path, and they need to drop quickly in altitude to get inside the glide path, so they select vertical speed mode, and they set a descent rate of 1,400 feet per minute. Once they do this, the plane starts dropping in altitude very quickly, just as they wanted. 
but they don't realize that the auto throttle has jumped into this retard flare mode because the plane's doing exactly what they expected it to do. They expected it to descend quickly, then level out once it gets inside that glide path. So the fact that the plane is in retard flare mode is being masked by the fact that the pilots wanted the plane to descend very quickly, and they didn't realize that the auto throttle had switched to this new mode. Another aspect that's complicating matters is that the crew didn't have their landing checklist complete by a thousand feet. Turkish Airlines official policy states that if the landing checklist isn't completed by a thousand feet, a go-around should be initiated. Well, these pilots didn't adhere to that policy. They're rushing, trying to get through their checklist instead of having the time to monitor their screens where they could have noticed that their airspeed was dropping below 144 knots or that the auto throttle was in this new retard flare mode. They were distracted, trying to pull off this slam dunk approach that they had to do very quickly and also complete their checklist. This left no time for observing the flight displays for any unexpected problems that might arise. So now we understand that flight 1951 had its auto throttle activated and the auto throttle jumped into retard flare mode or landing mode, which pulled back the throttles to idle and caused the plane to lose airspeed, eventually sending the plane into a stall from which the pilots couldn't recover because it happened at 460 feet. The pilots were distracted trying to pull off the slam dunk approach in a small frame of time, and they were also rushing through their checklist, which is distracting them from monitoring their airspeed and flight display. One question you might be asking yourself is, why weren't the pilots more alarmed when the landing gear configuration warning went off, and they were receiving these bad readings from the captain's side radio altimeter? Why didn't the pilots consider that the plane might hop into this retard flare mode? One reason Flight 1951 caught our attention is that on January 20th, 2020, the New York Times published an article by Chris Hamby that shed some new information about Turkish Airlines Flight 1951 and the design of the Boeing 737-800. What the pilots of Flight 1951 didn't realize, and Boeing never included in its manual for the plane, was that the auto throttle always pulls the radial altimeter information from the captain's side. There are two different sets of flight control computers on the 737-800, a left one and a right one. If you remember from the story, flight 1951 was flown with the first officer's flight control computer on the right side engaged. So the pilots, when they see that the captain's side is getting this erroneous reading from the captain's radio altimeter, they're just dismissive of that information. They think it doesn't matter because the first officer's flight control computer is the side that's engaged. What they didn't know is that even if the captain's side is not engaged, the auto throttle pulls its information from the captain's side. The auto throttle was using the captain's radio altimeter reading even though the flight crew was using the first officer's side to fly the plane. This information was not provided to the pilots by Boeing and could have been a big reason that the pilots weren't able to put together that the auto throttle was tricked into thinking the plane was landing, even though they were still 2,000 feet above ground. The New York Times article also stated that Dutch investigators softened or omitted criticisms of Boeing design for the plane after Americans in the NTSB and FAA raise objections to their criticisms. The Dutch Safety Board released a report on Turkish Airlines Flight 1951 in May 2010. In its conclusion, the report stated, 
During the accident flight, while executing the approach by means of the instrument landing system with the right autopilot engaged, the left radio altimeter system showed an incorrect height of negative 8 feet on the left primary flight display. This incorrect value of negative 8 feet resulted in the activation of the retard flare mode of the auto throttle, whereby the thrust of both engines was reduced to a minimal value, approach idle, in preparation for the last phase of landing. Due to the approach heading and altitude provided to the crew by air traffic control, the localizer signal was intercepted at 5.5 nautical miles from the runway threshold, with the result that the glide slope had to be intercepted from above. This obscured the fact that the autothrottle had entered the retard flare mode. In addition, it increased the crew's workload. When the aircraft passed 1,000 feet height, the approach was not stabilized, so the crew should have initiated a go-around the right autopilot, using data from the right radio altimeter, followed the glide slope signal. As the airspeed continued to drop, the aircraft's pitch attitude kept increasing. The crew failed to recognize the airspeed decay and the pitch increase until the moment the stick shaker was activated. Subsequently, the approach to stall recovery procedure was not executed properly, causing the aircraft to stall and crash. So how did the crash of Flight 1951 make flying safer? Well, the Dutch safety report made a number of safety recommendations. First, they recommended that Boeing improve the reliability of their radio altimeters. Boeing went on to develop new software that would use both radio altimeter readings for autothrottle control instead of just the captain's side. The Dutch safety board recommended that an auditory warning for low speed be created since the visual clues weren't enough to get the attention of the pilots of Flight 1951. Boeing embraced this recommendation, and now Boeing 737s have an auditory warning that says airspeed low, airspeed low, when an aircraft flies too slow. From the investigation, it was also seen that the captain reacted slowly to the approach to stall procedure, and they recommended more frequent training for the approach to stall procedure for commercial pilots, even very experienced ones. From the investigation, it was discovered that a lot of faulty radio altimeter issues had occurred on 737s across many airlines. They often went unreported. The report stressed the importance of reporting issues so Boeing and the airlines can be aware of any problems that needed to be addressed. The report also suggested that air traffic control at Amsterdam Airport should give approaches that are easier for planes to execute, giving pilots more time to prepare for landings and not increase their workload. Lastly, the crash of Flight 1951 brought to attention the fact that a faulty radio altimeter wasn't something to be ignored or tolerated. It could have an impact on flight controls, and this lesson has been seared into the minds of commercial pilots. So, Tess, I feel like given the new information in the New York Times article, there's a debate going on right now whether 1951 crashed because of pilot error or poor system design by Boeing. What do you think? Did you have any thoughts that you want to share on Flight 1951? Well, the, you answered my first big question, Michael, which was uh, why didn't the pilots flag the faulty altimeter readings as um, problematic? Because they didn't know that it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like this article is really showing us that this is just yet another example of how Boeing didn't properly communicate information to its pilots and didn't give them the tools they needed to react in a, a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, we have two things to evaluate. There's the pilot error side and the poor design side. 
I think when it comes to the pilot air side, the pilots without question made a few mistakes. They didn't monitor their airspeed. That's very important. The flight display said retard flare mode, and they didn't see that. They didn't pay attention to their attitude. The nose was pointed up because it was trying to increase lift because airspeed was low. They broke protocol by continuing with the landing, even though they didn't have the checklist done at 1,000 feet. They were just a little too overly reliant on computers as, as opposed to just flying the plane. But as you just brought up, there's a lot of poor design issues as well. It's kind of similar to the MAX 8 design. The auto throttle only pulled information from one source when two sources were available. More information means better decision making. There were two radio altimeters there. It seems like Boeing could have designed a 737-800 to pull information from both altimeters in case one malfunctioned, as this was the case. Also, the radio altimeters were notorious for being unreliable and having issues. So it seems like uh, whoever was making those radio altimeters wasn't doing a great job. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it seems like the pilots had their hands full just partly because the landing was so um, fast, this this slam dunk landing. I've never mm-hmm. heard of this before. Is this because of airports or I think why? it's something that happens at Skipple a lot. I don't know why exactly, but it's something that was kind of commonplace there. Huh, interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, do you think it's a problem that they didn't complete their checklist? And Yeah. And did did was anything ever communicated in the cockpit like we're just going to wing it this time or did no. they say anything or they just continued with the landing I think they just continued with the landing you could uh, I think at 500 feet they're saying cabin crew take your seats you're not that's part of the checklist that they had to have completed by a thousand feet Mm -hmm. and at 500 feet they're telling their flight attendants hey it's time to sit down when they should have done that 500 feet yeah that felt really last minute at 500 feet telling people to sit down i've i've never encountered that on a plane before yeah i think you brought up a good point which is everything kind of added up to this massive time crunch for Mm -hmm. them the slam dunk approach not to mention the captain has to train his first officer so that leaves less time for him to perform his duties Mm -hmm. he's under pressure. Also, I think air traffic control gave them a heading that put them in the approach at 5.5 nautical miles when standard procedure was to give them eight nautical miles, which is just more time. So they came into their glide path late. They lost time there. They had to do the slam dunk approach, which was another loss of time. They didn't get their checklist um, complete it and they're panicking doing that all these things are taking their attention away from what they should be doing which is just sitting there monitoring the flight screens making sure everything's normal yeah totally yeah i feel like accidents often happen not just with plane crashes but just in general when people feel pr- a pressure to complete something when they haven't checked all the necessary mm-hmm. safety boxes and this might be an example of that i, I don't know if there's a I guess if they'd started completing the checklist earlier in their descent, they would have been able to um, continue circling as they went through mm. everything. But Another option was at at 1,000 feet, they could have just been like, you know what, we're under pressure, we don't have our checklist done, we're doing this approach, let's just make it go around and do it in a safer, more organized fashion. Totally, yeah. Uh, an interesting thing is in the previous 48 hours prior to this flight, on two flights with the same plane used for flight 1951, the flight crews of those flights had radio altimeter malfunctions as well. 
Those flight crews saw the throttles get pushed back to idle, and they just took over control of the throttles manually and flew the plane. Mm. There were uh, 16 radio altimeter repair attempts on this particular plane for flight 1951. 150 instances of erroneous readings from the radio altimeter over the previous 1,000 flights. Turkish Airlines had 235 instances of issues with radio altimeters in their fleet in the year prior to this flight. And in 2008, there were 2,569 faulty radio altimeters on 737s. So this was a very common problem. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like they needed to um, address that. Yeah. Um, there were some clues that the pilots could have picked up on. Apparently on the, on the flight display, there was a missed red bar block on the flight display right next to airspeed. Once the plane got slow enough, there was a flashing box around the airspeed. You, they also could have seen that the plane had switched over to this retard flare mode. The throttles were moved all the way back to idle. The attitude or pitch of the plane was high in the final minute. And the autopilot was trying to keep on this glide path to the runway so the nose of the plane pushed up in the air as the airspeed dropped. The mixture of the high angle of attack and low airspeed eventually caused the stall. Mm-hmm. What you said earlier, I think definitely you have more accidents when you're stressed out you know a stressed out human being that has many things on their plate isn't going to perform as well and i think you nailed it that these guys were just under a lot of pressure to pull this approach that they weren't used to teach the first officer um you know deal with their checklist in a very short period of time and because they're stressed out maybe it's easier to overlook something that would be obvious to a relaxed mind like a flashing box around an airspeed but if you're yeah. stressed out and distracted maybe you just don't have as sharp of a mind as you would if you were relaxed yeah yeah it, it always feels like such a tragedy when something as simple as like airspeed is mm-hmm. is overlooked you would think that you know they would be constantly monitoring that but I guess what we have to realize is there are only so many people in the cockpit. Usually it's just two or three. Mm -hmm. And in a situation that's highly pressurized, you're not going to see everything, all the information in front of you. I can barely speak when I'm standing on stage in front of a group of people. My mind just goes completely blank. My mind goes blank sometimes when I'm doing this podcast. (laughs) It's just a natural reaction to anxiety. I think what you what you just said too the the speed with which everything fell apart is remarkable. It seemed like it was a perfectly normal flight into the final two minutes. I mean, if you're a passenger on that plane, you don't see anything weird happen. You're just going towards the ground, and then suddenly the plane crashes. So, I feel like they were really under this time crunch, lots of distraction, and everything fell apart in two minutes. Right, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, they were really close to the ground. It's funny. I as a passenger, sometimes I'm feel a sense of relief when we're like a hundred feet above the ground Mm -hmm. thinking that, you know, we could potentially just fall out of the sky and hopefully land on our two feet. But, um, I guess that's not apparently it happened to them. They stalled at 460 feet, which is pretty close to the ground, but high enough to do some damage. They broke into three pieces, but luckily not everyone on board died, which I'm, I'm happy about. Um, I want to talk about some of the similarities to the Max 8 story with this story. First off, apparently angle of attack sensors and radio altimeters are poorly made by whoever is making them. Yeah, who is making those things? And why are they making two? One that does the proper reading and one that doesn't. Yeah, it's the design. It's the design of not taking both of them that was 
at fault, I think. In regards to the Max 8, only 350 of these planes are out there, were out there, and two of the 350 went into the ground because the angle of attack sensors were basically garbage. With the Boeing 737-800s, a bad radio altimeter reading was so common that pilots stopped reporting the issue just because it was so commonplace. So I guess the big issue now is, did Boeing try and sweep the poor design of the 737-800 systems under the rug back in 2009 and fail to learn an important lesson that would eventually cause more design choices that were poor and poor communication with pilots that would eventually lead to the Max 8 crashes a decade later? Right. Yeah, I feel like with flying, we want to strive for a different level of perfection, it's like the Supreme Court, like everything has mm-hmm. to work perfectly well. And um, like, you know, when I'm driving my car and the check engine light goes on, I'm I'm pretty likely to just ignore it and keep driving. But when it comes to flying, it, nothing should be ignored. Yeah. We should, and Boeing should be more on top of those things. Yeah. If in 2009 they had learned that having a flight control system that is operating off of only one source of information when two sources of information are available is a bad idea, maybe they would have designed the Max 8 planes systems better. Maybe they would have designed a Max 8 plane to pull information from two angle of attack sensors instead of one. Maybe if they recognize that pilots need all the information on how these systems work in 2009, they would have given the Max 8 pilots more training and more information on MCAS. Maybe Boeing's hubris and desire to shift blame in 2009 to the pilots and not accept any blame just led to them to repeat the same mistakes in 2018 and 2019. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how this could just be uh, something that we could all take away to apply to things in our own life. If you keep on making the same mistake and you always want to point the finger at someone else and say, it's your fault, and you never do any self-reflection and realize that you're making the same mistake over and over again, you're never going to learn. You're never going to improve your life. And this seems like a glaring example of Boeing making a design mistake and not wanting to address the fact that they made a mistake or own up to it. And they just repeated the same mistake. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I feel like communication is, is also key. If we know what our weaknesses are and we know what the issues are, we can better plan um, for how to fix them and troubleshoot. Yeah. They didn't communicate to the pilots how their systems worked. And then pilots were flying these planes and didn't know how the plane was operating because Boeing didn't include it in the manual. So Mm -hmm. seems like a pretty glaring mistake. Um, uh, One thing that they learned was that the approach to stall warning training was inadequate for pilots and the captain. The first officer was just done with his training on these Boeing planes. So when the stick shaker happened, he pushed the throttle up immediately because he had just been trained. Once the captain takes over, nine seconds elapses before he pushes the throttles forward. And by then there wasn't enough time to recover from the stall. So that was an important lesson that we needed to learn. Still to this day, Turkish Airlines operates a daily flight from Istanbul to Amsterdam, and the flight number they still use is 1951. So every day there's still a Turkish Airlines flight 1951 flying in the skies. Oh, so do flight numbers stay the same for each like flight path? I think airlines might do things differently mm. per airline, but... Turkish Airlines has a daily flight from Istanbul to Amsterdam, and that, to this day, is flight 1951. Slightly ominous, but it's good not to be ruled by superstition. Yeah, I think it's also kind of an homage that we don't forget the captain. The pilots all lost their lives, and 
most of the rest of the plane survived. So um, I don't think, in summation, I would say this wasn't the pilot's fault. More than anything, they weren't given information and weren't pop properly trained by Boeing to fly the plane. They weren't given the full details of how the plane operated, so they couldn't do it. I have to agree, and I'm excited to read this New York Times article that you referenced. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, it was. Well, I think that's going to do it for Turkish Airlines Flight 1951. Lately when I'm flying, I feel like I keep on running into the same types of passengers on plane after plane. So I put together a brief little summary of archetypes of passengers I see on planes. Tessa, you want to hear it? Yes, please. You can tell me if you agree with my perception or if you think I'm off my rocker. Okay, got it. I think that this is going to be a very interesting deep dive, sociological deep dive. We'll see what happens. Uh, First archetype that I have is overhead bin guy. Who is overhead bin guy? He's the guy that gets in the overhead bin several times before the plane even leaves the gate. (laughs) And then he gets in the overhead bin again the second the ding from the seatbelt sign goes off once the plane reaches altitude. He also gets in the overhead bin several more times throughout the length of the flight, Tess, are you familiar with overhead bin guy? Honestly, Michael, this archetype is so ridiculously spot on. And let me just say, as a nervous flyer, overhead bin guy has been the bane of my existence. I often worry that he's um, up to no good when he's he's getting into that overhead bin. I actually like overhead bin guy. I just assume <laughs> he needs exercise and he's, he has a bad back and he doesn't like sitting in the chair. So any excuse to get out of his chair is good. So, he's antsy, but he's always like taking stock of his belongings. He's, you know, checking on checking on things, making sure it's all there. He can't keep still. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> overhead bin guy, we see you. You love the overhead bin. You're addicted to opening and closing the overhead bin. Completely addicted. We all have our thing, I guess, and that's okay. Yours is the overhead bin. He has a fetish for the overhead bin. Secondly is way too much to drink guy. Oh, that might be me. Lately, when I'm flying, there's always at least one guy or girl that's clearly going off at 35,000 feet a little too hard. Now, as a nervous flyer, I can understand wanting to take the edge off, but I don't know about ripping the whole damn thing off the wall. I see you way too much to drink, guy, ordering an adult beverage every time you catch the flight attendant's eye. I see you running to the bathroom every 15 minutes because what goes in must come out. Mm-hmm. I also see the uneasy glances your fellow passengers give you when you order that fourth drink. What do you think, Tess? Have you met way too much to drink guy in the skies? Oh, yeah, big time. And he can be, I think, spotted in a crowd by he starts to talk just a little louder than is appropriate for uh, a, an airplane. Yeah, I encourage everyone to enjoy themselves out there, but way too much to drink guy. You need to dial it down a notch. Dial it down. Or two notches. Yep. Dial it down two notches. Third, we have snoring guy. This one's pretty self-explanatory. He's the guy collecting some serious Z's en route to his planned destination. Let's face it, we're all jealous of snoring guy. He's found the perfect way to pass the time. He's not checking his watch every three minutes to see how much longer the flight is. He's not watching a mediocre movie that he's not really that into just to cure boredom. He's getting deep rest, and everyone around him is listening to his deep snore, wishing they could trade places with him. How do you feel about snoring guy, Tess? I know exactly who you're talking about. Let me tell you, I feel like snoring guy is asleep before takeoff. He's like... Sleeping is his superpower. He mm-hmm. could sleep anywhere. And it, it's, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I'm jealous too. Like, I wish I could get that kind of deep rest. 
Exactly. I feel like if I hear like a bird outside my window, I like wake up and think like the world's coming to an end. But snoring guy can get on a plane, fly him anywhere. He doesn't care. He's sleeping. So snoring guy, you can't help it. So keep snoring away. The world's your oyster. Just sleep right through life. Lastly, the final passenger archetype we'll be discussing today is what I like to call the David passenger. (laughs) What is the David passenger? Well, we all know the David sculpture by Michelangelo, right? That heroic, idealized, courageous vision of man and Mm -hmm. what we should all aspire to be. Well, the David passenger is the ideal, perfect passenger. You know, that passenger that catches your eyes. They stroll down the aisle while boarding the plane. Yep. Minimal baggage, big smile on their face. Well-dressed, well-groomed, friendly, reading a book, classy, relaxed, and polite. The David passenger helps fellow passengers with their bags and is patient, never presses ahead while trying to exit the plane. The David passenger never brings smelly food on the plane or complains about babies crying. He or she makes the flight more pleasant for his fellow or her fellow passengers. The David passenger is what I think we should all aspire to be when we're lucky enough to be flying the friendly skies. I find a number of David passengers on every flight I fly on. Tess, are you a David passenger? <laughs> I'm, I'm not a David yet, but I'm working towards it every day. You're probably a David passenger. Ugh, I don't know. I feel like they have a sort of star quality that I don't have. But, um, you know, dare to dream. One you have day oodles I'll become of one. Uh, star quality. <laughs> I can imagine. you When you get on a plane, I'm sure you're smiling. I bet you're patient. I bet you help people. You just helped that girl on the flight to Austin, giving her a friendly smile. Well, yeah, I could have done more, but I guess that's what we all tell ourselves. Yeah. I want to be a David passenger, but alas, I'm just Michael. Plain old Michael. I'm a Michael passenger, which means I'm just looking around, observing things, debating whether I should spend another $8 on a glass of wine. Well, I will say your recent trend of wearing sports jackets on airplanes is has really set you apart as more of a David than I had originally thought. I'm aspiring. <laughs> I'm, aspiring. I'm an aspiring David. Yeah. <laughs> now we have a few items to touch upon in the world of airline news. Tess, you want to hear them? Sure. On February 7th, 2020... A Michigan resident named Ronica Frozy flew with her miniature horse from Grand Rapids, Michigan to Dallas, where she had a connection and continued on to Ontario, California. Fred, the miniature horse, now a member of the Mile Hay Club, was hey, se- hey, 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 hey. <laughs> he was seated in first class right next to Ronica. Ronica said she paid an arm and a leg for two first class seats so both her and Fred could be comfortable and not be a nuisance to anyone else on the plane. Only the best for her horse. Yes. Ronica also said that Fred is better trained than most dogs, is completely housebroken. She said the trip was amazing. Everyone was sweet as pie. TSA was amazing. The experience was way better than I had actually anticipated. Fred the miniature horse got his picture taken with an American Airlines captain that was proud to have him on board. Here on PCPC, over the last couple of episodes, we've been talking a lot about service animals. This story caught my eye because I thought Ronica really just knocked it out of the park. She trained her animal really well to make sure it wouldn't be an inconvenience to anyone else. She bought two first-class tickets so her animal could be comfortable and not crowd any of her fellow passengers. What do you think, Tess? Do Ronica and Fred belong in the skies on planes? It sounds like they earned their wings. Yeah. I feel like there are a lot of news stories these days that shame people for their exotic service animals, but it sounds like 
she uh, completely took control of that narrative and trained her horsey to perfection. Yeah, I think if all animal owners are as good as Ronica, service animals wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't be a hot topic. If you buy a seat for your pet and make sure they're properly trained, there's no big deal. Ronica also mentioned in an interview that she gets why there's such a negative backlash to service animals on planes. She said a lot of people abuse the system and don't train their animals, and they create a bad reputation for all service animal owners. So w- way to go, Ronica. I hope more animal owners are as considerate and as thoughtful as you. Yes, and if Fred would be interested in coming on the pod, we are open to that. Yeah, Fred can come on anytime. He can slide into our DMs if he's interested. On January 31st, on American Eagle Flight 4392, a flight from New Orleans to Charlotte, North Carolina, two passengers seated at the back of the plane got into a bit of a tiff about a reclined seat. A man seated in the back row repeatedly punched the back of a reclined seat that a woman in front of him was sitting in. The woman took a video of the incident, and the video went viral over the past week, with everyone and their brother commenting on the proper etiquette for reclining a seat on a plane. The woman said she reclined her seat, and the man asked her if she would put it back so he could eat, which she did. After his meal, she reclined her seat again, and he proceeded to punch her seat in protest. Delta CEO Ed Bastian even waded into the discussion, saying passengers should ask the person behind them politely if they can recline their seat. Everyone has an opinion on reclining seats these days. Celebrities, professional athletes are all putting in their two cents. What say you, Tess? Is reclining okay? Should you ask the person behind you or should you just go for it? Well, this is definitely a hot topic and it's something that I have thought about too because I've been that passenger who the person in front of me puts their seat back Mm -hmm. while I'm trying to eat or watch a movie and suddenly I'm incredibly cramped. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just trying to enjoy my flight and I feel like I can barely move. Yeah. Um, and it, it is kind of a letdown. Like it, it takes the wind out of my sails. I mean, I guess that's what I get for flying in coach, but, Mm -hmm. um, so I think asking the passenger behind you if if you can recline is actually a great idea, and it's something I've never done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm going to start doing it from now on. I do feel like when you're flying at night, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. Everybody's reclining, and you kind of go down like dominoes. Like if everyone's reclining, it's not a problem. But if one person is reclining and another isn't, mm-hmm. that's when it becomes cramped. I feel like you nailed it when you said that this is an economy issue, that we sit in an economy and airlines pack people in like sardines in a can and thus reclining becomes an issue because we already feel squished. Right. If you're in first class, you don't have to deal with this issue at all. So right. maybe airlines should consider giving us a little more room. Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah, airlines, if you're listening, give us a little more space so that we don't have to fight with each other. Yeah. As for the guy on flight 4392, that guy's an idiot. Let's just put that in there. Yeah. You're an idiot, sir. Initially, the lady puts her seat in recline. You ask her to put it up so you can eat, which she does for you. And then you're done with her your meal. She decides she wants to recline again, and you punch her seat like a little five-year-old boy. So, yeah. Use your words, sir. Just Use be, your words. Yeah. When it comes to reclining, just be polite in all aspects of life. Just be a polite person. Be a decent person. Say please. There's no, never an excuse for like acting like a child when you're an adult. Couldn't agree more. It's a lesson that we should all use our words and not punch each other. Yeah, no punching. No punching on board. 
On February 7th, 2020, Brazilian-American entrepreneur David Nealman announced plans to start a new airline called Breeze Airways. Nealman was founder of JetBlue as well. Breeze Airways is going to focus on serving secondary markets and connecting them to larger markets with nonstop flights to these larger markets. The new airline has ordered 60 Airbus A22300s that carry 130 to 160 passengers, depending on the configuration. The company hopes to start service by late 2020. Nealman says he hopes the airline is known as the world's nicest airline. Breeze is planning on having an app where passengers can book tickets, make travel changes, enjoy in-flight entertainment, all on the app, and no interaction with customer service would be necessary. What do you think about Breeze Airways, Tess? Is it poised for success? I love the name, and um, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of um, the comfort of air travel, so I am hoping for their success. Yeah. I liked everything about it except for a couple aspects. I'm not crazy about the app thing. I like human interaction. I like bank tellers and not ATMs. I like talking to someone as my groceries are rang up. I don't like self-service grocery checkouts. I think human interaction is being phased out of our society, and I don't like that. Yeah. I always like Southwest Airlines. I feel like whenever I call them on the phone, I always talk to some cool rep that's just really down to earth and easy to talk to. Plus, changing flights with them is really easy. I agree. I feel like it's a bit inconvenient to be forced to download an app to um, watch entertainment on a flight. Mm-hmm. Like Most people are going to take a variety of different airlines and having to download an app for each airline seems a bit kind like of a annoying. Bit of an, yeah. Well, it gets back to our discussion from a couple episodes ago about how we like screens. I right. like screens. That's yeah. why I like JetBlue. But this guy was from we JetBlue. We like screen time. Yeah, maybe he'll put things together. I like uh, screens in the back of seats. I don't like tablets or phones or laptops. Just give me a good screen that I can watch a movie on. I do like the idea of people in smaller markets having more options for travel. I kind of uh, always wanted high-speed rail across the United States. I feel like it would cut down on the division in the country. And uh, with this uh, Breeze Airways, they seem like they're going to serve smaller markets, maybe bring people from smaller markets to larger markets, bring people from larger markets to smaller markets. One uh, aspect that I thought was kind of a bummer is this is an American airline that is buying 60 Airbus planes. So it's kind of a bummer that Boeing's dealing with the headaches that they are because we could have a boost to an American manufacturer as opposed to a European one. But the Europeans got to eat too, so kudos to the Airbus. Well, I hope they have a breezy takeoff. Oh, that's a nice, <laughs> nice line. Uh, lastly, on February 3rd, 2020, on a Qatar Airways flight from Doha to Bangkok, a Thai woman gave birth on the floor of the plane with the aid of a Ukrainian doctor named Elena Fedchenko. Apparently, the Thai woman went into labor while the plane was mid-flight, and the cabin crew announced that they were looking for a doctor on the plane, and Dr. Fedchenko stepped up to the plate Dr. Fedchenko said the delivery was quick and thankfully without complication. The woman didn't yell at all. I kept telling her everything would be all right, that I was a doctor and she was in safe hands. The plane made a pit stop in Calcutta where the new baby boy and mother were transported to the hospital. And then the plane continued on to Bangkok. Dr. Fedchenko was upgraded to business class and was given champagne the rest of the flight. What do you think about that, Tess? I think that that woman uh, ended up with a carry-on that she was not expecting. Yeah. I wonder if they charged her for extra (laughs) carry-ons. They're like, "Uh, we didn't didn't expect this baggage. Yeah. They were like, you're going to have to pay for that for your child's passage. We'll make a pit stop for you, but you will have to pay $30 for unauthorized Mm carry-on. 
I think this baby isn't going to be a nervous flyer, too. It's completely comfortable in the skies. Forever that baby's going to say, I was born flying. Nothing to worry about. Yeah. It's a citizen of the sky. Well, I think that's going to do it for episode 16 of the Plane Crash Podcast. Thank you to Tess Andrade, our producer and guest. Tess, you want to say anything to the people? Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Hello, Mm -hmm. goodbye, people, and I love you. Yes, thanks, Tess, for joining us. Um, If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Plane Crash Pod. Thanks for the reviews. Um, I noticed that people out there have been requesting more episodes. Each episode, we've had episodes that have taken 80 to 100 hours to research and write and stuff. We're trying to crank them out as fast as we can. But I'm going to try and do something that I've never done before, which is promise you all a new episode inside of seven days. Wow. Wow. You're saying this live, Michael. You realize this can't be undone. Yeah. I'm putting it out into the universe. Watch seven days pass and no episode comes out and I'm just the jerk of the world. We're all going to hold you accountable. We've had some people send in some books to us. um, So we're working on many episodes, but I think I'm going to go in this next seven day window with one I haven't even chose yet. So we're going to see top to bottom, try and work hard because that's how we're going to do things in 2020 is work hard and make the world a better place. I'm going to try and do it by bringing a new episode. Let me just interject quickly because I wanted to tell you guys that we are flirting with the idea of starting a Patreon account. We don't know if that's selling out or if it's lame. We've been kind of dragging our feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but let us know if you think that's a good idea Give or don't let feedback. us know. I don't know. We're, we're, I'm just throwing it out there so that you guys know what's in our, our heads. Yeah, we uh, unfortunately don't make... Uh, money doing the podcast don't but if make we, them feel bad for us <laughs> if we did have a little money coming in we'd probably get faster episodes so and we'd be able to buy uh, that. give us some feedback tell us if you think this is a good idea or not we're also flirting with the idea of starting a mileage program for merch and um, making some stuff but uh we're, we're we're thinking about everything i hope you're all making the world a better place i hope you're kind i hope you're polite I hope you're working hard at whatever you've chosen to do. If you're a student, I hope you're studying and you're going to get A's this semester. If you're a construction worker, I hope you're building unbelievable homes. I hope you all take care of yourself out there. I love you guys and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.